Ezra has been our anchor point in this study, and uh, I want to give you a sense of how all of these pieces fit together, because you don't often get this when you're reading through the scriptures. We read all of these as sort of separate books and separate accounts, and, and they actually interact and overlap quite a bit. Uh, Ezra is the anchor point in our story. Uh, we know from the book of Ezra that Cyrus, the king of Persia, sends this remnant of Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that story is followed immediately by the book of Nehemiah, which uh, Nehemiah was actually, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. And they tell a, a complete narrative. Nehemiah tells the story of the continued reconstruction and particularly uh, the rebuilding of the city walls. Now, we talked earlier about the fact that I in the book of Ezra, between chapters 6 and 7, there's about a 50-year gap, and in that gap is when the story of Esther takes place. So she's right there in, in the middle of all of that. And uh, when we talked about Esther, I mentioned that beginning prior to all of these events and extending well into these events, is when the book of Daniel takes place. Along the way, we've got uh, th three prophets, three minor prophets that show up in the storyline, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So uh, those, those uh, books right at, at the end of your Old Testament also factor into all of this. Now, all of this is very significant not only because it is this wonderful story of the reconstruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and all that went into that and all the trials that the people faced and the, the problems that they have and the ways that they stumble and the times that they're faithful and all those great things that we can learn from. It's also significant in that this narrative, these stories, precede a time of scriptural silence. This is, in effect, the end of the Old Testament. And there is a period of about 400 years of silence while we wait for John the Baptist to appear on the scene. So all of these events are set into motion uh, during this time. The immediate uh, prophecies in Daniel and in these, these uh, three minor prophets, are matched by their messianic prophecies about a coming kingdom. Now, the Messiah, of course, had been mentioned by other prophets. We know from Isaiah, for instance, about the suffering servant. We, we read about him. He's got some, Isaiah has some fantastic prophecies about the Messiah that we tend to read around this time of year. But these last four prophets, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, sort of set into motion something of a countdown to when the Messiah will come, a, a time of anticipation. And it begins with Daniel, who describes to us the succession of earthly kings and kingdoms that will take place until the Christ comes. But we probably should say that Daniel's story actually begins much earlier. He is probably born during the reign of King Josiah. 
Josiah is a great story. I wish we had time just to uh, just spend on that this morning, but I don't want to get too bogged down with all my goat trails. Uh, so Josiah was a reformer king. Now, if you read through Kings and Chronicles, if you've ever done that before, uh, or if you, you get, take a refresher and read through it again, the kings, the succession of kings in Judah and Israel, uh, almost all of them have one thing in common, and that is they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There are very few of them that don't get this description. Josiah is really an interesting one because he comes to the throne as a child. He, in his teens, is determined to live faithfully before God, to use his throne to serve the Lord, which is very unusual for kings of Israel and Judah. Then, because of some things that he has set in motion, there's Levites down at the temple who are doing a little spring cleaning. They're cleaning out the temple. They're going through all the back rooms. They're dusting everything off. The temple has fallen into disrepair, and Josiah is seeing to it that things are put back in order. And in the process of cleaning the temple, these workers find a copy of the law, a copy of the Torah. Okay, now, just to put that in perspective, Imagine that suddenly all the copies of the Bible that you knew about just were gone. They got lost. They all got misplaced. And from, from that point forward, uh, we, just, we just gather for worship and talk about the things that we remember about God's Word. Because we've never seen a copy of it. They actually lost the Torah they lost the law, and then they're cleaning out a back room somewhere, and somebody says, what is this? What is this? And they open it up, and it's the Torah, and they bring it to the king, and the king's very excited about it, and they go through it, and he has his advisors look at everything, and they are determined, they are determined now to use this rediscovery of the law to bring about reform. Now, remember that this is immediately before the people are defeated and taken off into exile, and their prophets have been warning them now for generations that that is precisely what's going to occur because of their unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry. Josiah comes along at the, at almost at the very end of that, and he brings about all these reforms, and he starts tearing down the idols, and he cleans out the temple, and he, he does all these fantastic things. You think, wait a minute, wait a minute, if Josiah reformed, if Josiah reformed Judah, after, after God had been so patient with all of these kings who did nothing except serve themselves, why didn't it buy them any more time? Why did the nation of Israel still end up in exile? Well, the archaeological record is interesting at this point because even as Josiah has torn down the Asherah poles and all these idols and all these uh, idolatrous worship and he puts an end to this and he puts out all of these decrees, the archaeological record suggests that household idols become 
prolific. So what's happening here? Josiah's public reforms are apparently matched with an increase in private and household idolatry. All of which kind of illustrates for us that external control does not always yield internal character. In other words, we can make all the rules that we want. If you don't change people's hearts, you haven't actually changed anything. The law is limited in this regard. It cannot really change the heart. Laws can be enforced. Crimes can be prosecuted. But we cannot reform by simple virtue of law. Morality can be coerced. We can use fear and shame to try to compel it. It doesn't actually make people more moral. Which is why, if in the middle of the night, you hear what you think is an intruder breaking into your house, you don't reach into the nightstand looking for your copy of the statutes against breaking and entering. I wish I had a piece of paper to repel this invader. Doesn't work that way, right? Bylaws, the bylaw process has been kind of interesting, uh, an interesting sort of human experiment. We've been involved in this for several months, kind of debating this and going back and forth. And all throughout that process, you're tempted to believe, tempted to believe that you can actually shape what happens based on getting this right. You know, obviously... You wish sometimes that we had some kind of written document that would guide our behavior and attitudes in the church. And wish that that would, oh, right. See, here's this the problem. This is the problem. If laws made people righteous, we would have no need for the gospel. If rules and policies were a substitute for good character and good leadership, we wouldn't need the gospel. Because God's people have had laws for thousands of years. Those laws, as the New Testament writers point out, those laws do not make us righteous, and if anything, they point out all the times that we're unrighteous. Josiah had good public policy, but policy was not enough. When we open up the book of Daniel, we come to a very different kind of situation. Instead of good policy matched by the unrighteousness in men's heart, we have righteous men who are living under the authority of bad policy. And yet these men will thrive in this setting. So in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Azariah, sorry. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 
ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. See, God's people are valued for their virtues. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I have to think that these four men are recognized for their wisdom because first, they had the fear of the Lord. And they grow in wisdom because of it. When God's people follow God's path, they cultivate within themselves certain virtues. And those virtues have a tendency to find favor among the people. We're studying the early Christians right now in our Bible study class. The early Christians, we know, found favor with all the people, which is kind of hard to figure out because we also know that they faced persecution, significant persecution at times. So if they found favor and they faced persecution, how does that work? Well, probably the same way that it worked in Daniel and his friends, find favor with the king. They are recognized for their virtue, recognized for their wisdom, recognized for being honest, for being true, and for having better answers than their pagan counterparts. When God's people follow God's path, they cultivate certain desirable virtues. The New Testament puts it this way. Paul says in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, no kingdom, no principality, not even the pagan ones, are against love, joy, and peace. If we have these things in spades, they will be regarded positively, whether believers, non-believers, Christians, non-Christians, disciples, non-disciples. They're just valuable qualities. But God's people are despised for their resolve. For their resolve. The, the same New Testament says that we will be hated for the sake of Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to idols. They will not participate in the idolatry of the kingdom. Daniel faces the lion's den because there's an edict forbidding worship for 30 days of anyone, for, of anyone but the king. You can't worship anyone but the king. Daniel kind of makes his cohort, his, his peers, his, um, his fellow palace workers jealous. They're jealous of his success, and they can't undermine him by corruption. There's Here's the, here's the indicator that Daniel has this kind of virtue that's cultivated by God. Daniel 6 says, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. We're never going to find anything. I hope, I hope people think that about me. I hope that that is what I inspire, that you think, we will never find anything against this guy. 
I know where the bodies are buried, but we're never going to find anything against Daniel. Folks, um, this is a remarkable statement to make about anyone in government. We're never going to find anything corrupt enough about this guy to nail him on his own uh, charges. And so what we've got to do is we've got to use his faithfulness against him. Use one of his virtues to try to undermine him. And that's exactly what they do. They go to the king and they get this ridiculous 30-day edict passed and if you worship anybody but the king, you'd be thrown into the lion's den, which was a very dramatic sort of punishment. And we read these stories, and what we know about them is, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saved from the fiery furnace when a fourth character shows up in the furnace, an angel of some sort. And the king is overjoyed and brings them out and rewards them. We know that the lion's mouths are shut up while Daniel's in the lion's den and those who tried to have him killed end up being thrown into the lion's den themselves and devoured. And we love those stories, those miraculous intervention stories. But what we need to understand is that these are not simply stories about people who were saved from horrific circumstances by God. These are people who are found to be obedient even unto death. So in Daniel 3, 17 and 18, these three men say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. That is a remarkable statement. Folks, what we need to understand is that this space in between is very missional. Between the virtues that we cultivate as a people of God that are esteemed by men and the resolve that we have to serve God's righteousness even unto death, which is not esteemed by men. There is a space where God can make powerful things happen. Between the treasure that we know the righteousness of the kingdom is and our will to sacrifice for it and die for it, something insanely powerful and wonderful can happen. Something lives in that tension. The church has often been distracted by self-help and self-realization and sort of a health and wealth gospel or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe coercing people into a salvation with fear of death and hell. Here's what, here's what we need to know. The treasure that God has given us does not need to be dressed up in the idolatry of this world in order to be valuable. Daniel is a book of dreams. 
And each one has something to say about kings and kingdoms. Most importantly, has something to say about a kingdom come. Daniel 2, verse 44, says, In those times the kings, the God of heaven and earth, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. See, th these are a people in exile awaiting deliverance. And their faith is tested daily. They will endure. And they will champion righteousness. And they will do it because they know something, or more importantly, someone is coming. The future hope is the arrival of a righteous king who will set up an eternal kingdom he will be the end of sin. He will atone for iniquity. He will bring eternal righteousness. And from this point forward, their existence is about waiting and anticipating the arrival of that guy. And it ain't Santa Claus. Exile is a time for great dreams and even greater courage. In a lot of ways, even today, we are still in exile. We live in a world that is not yet ruled by Christ. But we have an advantage over Israel in exile in that we know the kingdom has begun. We see in the life of Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, the beginning of the kingdom. And we are not at the beginning of the story or 400 years before the beginning of the story waiting for the story to take place. We are, in fact, mid-story. And mid-story can be a very exciting time. It should be a very exciting time for the church. It should be a spirit-filled time, a time when we are all gaining new stories about how God showed up to advance his kingdom. And if we are courageous enough to dream, if we are courageous enough to live in the in-between space where we are esteemed by the world for our virtues and we are hated by the world for our virtues, if we can live in that space, amazing, powerful things can happen. But Daniel's dreams weave another theme as well. There is this theme of idolatry, of an abomination, a, a desolation. There's this whole idea of really a false god being set up right there in the midst of the temple. The threat of this false god being raised in that temple space is a, is a, is a desolation. The present is marred by the threat of desolation. See, we are a kingdom people. Ideally, we are surrendered to the kingdom. We are living for it, and we are living towards it. 
We are loving and serving our king. We are trying to expand his territory. We are making disciples. But there is a threat. It's not the threat that we usually think about. We think about the fallenness of the world. We think about how bad sometimes the world could get. We think about the moral corruption, the moral relativity, and and the damage that it's doing to people's lives. All of that is bad. But that's not actually a threat to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The ultimate, the ultimate desecration, the ultimate desolation, the ugliest idolatry is not pagan. It is that which creeps into the temple space of God. It is that which we allow to dwell among us. And when we make idols of our fear or our self-interest or our prosperity or our comfort and we elevate those idols above Christ, we have brought into the temple space that which desolates. But the future is marked by the hope of the kingdom. promise of the prophecy is that Christ will crush all the other kingdoms and he will set up a kingdom for himself that lasts forever. So the kingdoms of this world, no matter what they may be, will be reduced to dust. And if we have allowed idols into the spaces of our lives, our homes, and our churches. And we will be crushed along with them. That's the bad news. The good news is Christ reigns. And the future is his. That's been the guarantee since all these centuries ago. That is the promise made to Daniel. It's the promise made to Isaiah. It's the promise made to Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Christ will reign. All other kingdoms, all false gods, all idols will fall. They will be crushed. They will be no more. The future will be his. And the really good news is that if we are his, if we live in and for his kingdom, By inheritance, the future is also ours.